We are going to be going through Matthew chapter 2. We started this sermon series two weeks ago. The King has come. That is how Matthew presents Jesus Christ as our King. Yes, the King of the Jews. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning as well. But everyone's King. This King that has come in such an unusual way, who taught in unusual ways and taught unusual things and did unusual things. The most unusual of which was a King who would die on a cross for the sake of his subjects, that all might be saved through Jesus Christ. And today we're talking about being threatened. Have you ever felt threatened by something or someone? So might be a, a physical threat. Our neighbors have a dog. It's a big, burly, vicious, I'm sure it's a sweetheart, but she scares me to death. You know how some bark, some dogs bark like, I just want you to know that I'm here and I want you to pet me and, and love me. And some dogs are like, I'm really annoyed with you and I just want you to know it. This dog barks like I'm going to bite your head off. That's the, the how I interpret her bark. I feel very threatened by our neighbor's dog. Maybe it's a physical threat of an illness something attacking your body. We have that going on in our culture, in our world today with this COVID virus. Maybe it's a psychological or emotional threat, someone who is taunting you or bullying you online or in person or at work. Maybe it's a financial threat. Maybe you are watching your retirement savings right now and things going on in the market and wondering what in the world is going to happen here. Maybe you're watching costs go up of normal things, or maybe it's a loss of a job or financial instability, and there's a threat there as well. But have you ever thought about being threatened by Jesus? I mean, we talk about Jesus being my friend, my comforter, my savior, my Lord. We don't really think about Jesus being a threat, but as we walk through Matthew chapter 2, you're going to see two different responses to Jesus Christ, and one of them is someone who is deeply, intensely threatened by Jesus Christ. As we go through this, I want you to think about what is it at the root that causes us to feel threatened by somebody or something. And I would suggest that the thing that's threatening us is threatening to change what we consider normal, natural, comfortable, or just what we want to do. Right? So, so a bully is threatening to fight us. Well, I don't consider it normal to be pummeled or hurt. That is a threat to what I consider normal. I want to be comfortable. Please don't hit me. Okay? At its most basic level, there is this threat to what I consider normal. It is a feeling that something is going to change us for the worse. But what if that thing that is bringing change is actually a change for the better? Well, now it's not a threat, it's a gift. And we're going to see these two different responses as we walk through Matthew chapter 2. And we'll start with looking at these two groups, well, one group and one individual, the Magi and King Herod. And again, one will see Jesus as a gift and one will see Jesus as a threat. I would like to read this passage to you uh, so that by the end of the sermon, we will have read through all of Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along with, uh, with me. I, I think we had to remove the Bibles from the chairs. Sorry about that. But uh, you can follow along. Matthew chapter 2, I'll be reading out of the NIV. Let me read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll skip to 16 through 18. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to King Herod, or to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's skip down to verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Christmas passage, right? Kind of weird in the middle of summer, late summer, I guess, to be looking at it. But this is about the birth of our Savior. And it's more than just about the time when he was born. It's about the reason for his coming. Matthew is tying in some huge themes throughout Scripture. And he's giving us a glimpse into this group of people, these magi, and then King Herod. So let's talk about the Magi a little bit. They want to worship this king who has been born, and they don't really know a whole lot about him. Magi were astronomers, scholars, astrologers. Kind of mix all that together, and they were the wise men of that day. They were not kings, all right? The the whole we three kings is just wrong. They weren't kings. They, They were wise men, astrologers, scholars, astronomers, It says they saw a star, something they believed to be a star. We don't know if it was like a supernova, which is a star exploding, a comet, which would kind of look like a star streaking across the sky. We don't know, but it was something unusual. They didn't just look up and go, oh, look, a star, let's walk. I mean, they saw stars all the time. This was something out of the ordinary that triggered a thought that they said, hey, we've been studying about a king that would come. Something is going on. Let's walk in that direction. We also don't really know where they came from, from the east. It's all we know. Now, there's really not anything directly east of Israel except a giant desert. So these men must have come from quite a ways away. The other thing we don't know is how many of them there were. So once again, We three kings. People say three because there's three gifts, but we have no idea. Later on in church history, they even gave them names. We definitely don't know that. That, That's just pure fiction at that point, to be honest with you. I think they even described like one was from China, India, and somewhere else. We don't know any of that. 
All right, so be careful. This is all we know about the Magi is what's here in Matthew. That's it. We do know that they traveled. They said, this is important. Let's get up and let's go. Now, assuming this sign, the star, appears when Jesus is born, and they're arriving anywhere between 6 to 18 months later, they traveled for a long time. Okay, It's at least a couple months after Jesus is born at this point. Which is, an, I have to say it because my kids are thinking it. When you set up the nativity, just put the wise men off to the side. Okay, <laughs> They're on their way. They didn't actually come to the manger. It's, it's, it's one of my pet peeves. We know that they were coming to see a king. They say that to Herod, but we also see it in their gifts. These were kingly gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are all incredibly valuable. And they were things that when you were coming to visit someone important, you wanted to give them an important gift. This was an act of worship. Now, we don't know if for them worship meant this is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and I am praising and worshiping him, Or this is somebody really important and I just want to show that I think he's really important. They could have simply meant worship that way. I think Matthew is showing they are doing more than they even understand. They are worshiping the Son of God. Some have read all sorts of meaning into these gifts, which is possible. Some of these, especially frankincense and myrrh, I believe, were preparing someone for burial. Matthew doesn't say that. We just don't know. We do know they were gifts fit for a king. A big question that comes up often, and I've had this question, what happened to these gifts? Mary and Joseph were incredibly poor. We know they were poor when Jesus was born. We know later on when they come to the temple when he is 12 that they're still poor. The gift that they give at the temple for uh, his coming of age and his dedication is the poor person's gift. Throughout Jesus' life, we see that he is poor. So what happened to the gifts? You ready for the answer? We don't know. (laughs) But I'll give you the best guess. So we do know that right after this, in fact, we'll look at it later in the chapter, Mary and Joseph and the baby have to uproot their life and go to Egypt. They stay in Egypt for several months to a year or so, and then they come back and they settle up in Galilee. It's very possible these gifts went to pay for all of that. Um, and if Joseph wasn't able to work during that time, that, I mean, that could be it. We just don't know. But what we see is that these wise men, these magi, saw Jesus as someone important. And they were willing to give of their time, to cut time out of their life and say, this is so important, we want to go see. They were willing to bring gifts of great value to Jesus. And as I was thinking about this and what Matthew says, what little they knew, they didn't know where the Messiah was to be born. I assume they didn't really have much of an idea of the Messiah from the Old Testament other than a general idea that this king of the Jews would come, which got me thinking. Every single person gathered here today probably knows more about Jesus Christ than the Magi. And look at how they responded. You know, when people say, I just don't know that much. I just, I really haven't studied that much. These guys had studied a lot of different things, but they didn't know Jesus much at all. But they knew he was important enough to say, we need to go and we need to worship him. Now, the other other person we need to look at is Herod. 
I believe Matthew intentionally puts these two things together, partially because of the interaction that took place, but also to show the difference in their response. Think about Herod. He was known as Herod the Great. I don't think he gave that name to himself. Maybe. Herod actually did some pretty incredible things. One of the biggest ones was he built the temple that Jesus would later go to, the disciples would go to, the early church would would meet in. That's Herod's temple. It's this Herod. He had built that. It was one of his massive building projects for the Jewish people. Did you know that Herod the Great was part Jewish? He was half Jewish. He was one among them. Now, granted, from a more of a royal upper-class line, but he was Jewish. In 40 BC, he travels to Rome, and the Roman Senate gives Herod the Great an incredible honor. They give him a title. The title that they bestow upon Herod is King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Now, as we fast forward here, the, the birth of Jesus, this is going to really mess with your heads, probably around 5 or 4 BC. Jesus was born a few years before the time of Christ. I know, it kind of messes with you. But we know that Herod dies in 4 BC. So, so the dating originally of the birth of Christ is probably a little bit off. But we know that toward the end of his life, this guy went kind of crazy. He was obsessive. He was neurotic. He was psychotic. He became cruel. He had an extensive network of spies and would torture and kill his enemies. His own family was not exempt. He killed three of his own sons. He murdered his wife and his wife's mother and grandfather. This guy is messed up. Now, I would like to look at verses 2 and 3 again. With that as the backdrop, understand the interchange between Herod and the Magi. I'll put it up on the screen here. So the Magi come from the east to Jerusalem and ask, where is the one who has been born, what? King of the Jews. Can you imagine how Herod just heard that? You talk about a double take. Wait a minute, king of the Jews, that's me. What do you mean one who's been born king of the Jews? I had to earn that. Who is this upstart threat? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Were they really so concerned about Magi coming and maybe this baby has been born and wouldn't they be excited? I mean, a king, a king has been born. Why was all Jerusalem disturbed with him? Because the guy was a nut job. He was psychotic. And when he didn't get his way or he saw something as a threat, he did horrible, awful things. So why was all Jerusalem upset as word spread like wildfire? What's Herod going to do? What bad thing is going to come to us right now because our king is so messed up and he just learned that somebody has come who is the true king of the Jews. Herod is threatened. And because Herod is threatened, all the people of the area feel threatened. 
Herod, of course, finds out that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and he makes this plan. He looks so good, doesn't he? He sends the Magi on their way, and he gives them instructions. Oh, go find him, and when you do, come and tell me, because I really want to worship him, too. Everything in this passage makes it abundantly clear that Herod has no desire to worship Jesus. He has every desire to kill Jesus. God sovereignly protects the family, tells Joseph in verse 13 uh, to flee. He tells the Magi not to go back to King Herod, and Herod becomes furious. And we come to verses 16 through 18, which is in the midst of an already difficult story, but at the same time, it's, it's this beautiful Christmas narrative, and yet we have this horrendous incident of a threatened, powerful person taking out his anger and trying to protect his own kingdom. He gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Now, scholars have debated this for a long time. And people have said, this is not found in history anywhere. You would think if there was this slaughter of all these young boys, somebody would have written it down. Bethlehem was not a large area. And scholars estimate that it's quite possible that the number of children that were murdered was maybe around 20. I'm not saying that to excuse it in any way, shape, or form. But you could cover that up. Also, who wrote the history books? Herod. Remember the network of spies? Remember the killing of family members? He did all sorts of things that nobody has any idea about because he only recorded the things he wanted to be recorded. It is not impossible at all for him to have done this and gotten away with it without it being recorded in history. In fact, I would be more surprised if it was recorded in any of the official histories. But that aside, that scholar scholarly debate aside, what a tragedy. These parents, these families, not part of this cosmic narrative of the Son of God coming. They're just living their lives and their child is murdered. And they may not ever have even known why. Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31. And it's interesting how he ties this in because Jeremiah 31 is in the context of the exile. The Israelites have to leave their land and go into exile. And there's this profound sorrow because they've been taken over. Their towns are being ransacked. Their fields are being burned. They're losing everything. And there's this incredible, profound sorrow. And Matthew ties that into this account. Herod saw Jesus as a threat. Now, you might be thinking, okay, crazy king guy saw another king as a threat. I don't really see how this impacts my life today. Not sure you're ever going to find yourself in that particular situation, right? So it might be easier to just excuse this and walk away. Jesus will say to his disciples later on in his life, follow me. Follow me. And of course, their question is, where are you going? Well, we know from the rest of the Gospels where Jesus was going. 
Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 16, 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you understand what's going on in that passage and what Jesus is saying? We talk about the gospel being a gift, and it is. We talk about the gospel being grace, and it is. But make no mistake, the gospel is a threat to our own way of living, our own way of thinking, what we think keeps us safe and comfortable and happy. Jesus is a threat. So the question for us is, how are we going to respond? Will we, like the Magi, worship? Or we, will we, like Herod, try to hold on to what's ours and protect it at any cost? Often when I'm talking with people about the gospel, someone who's not a believer, they have excuses, they have reasons, they have arguments for why they won't receive Jesus. And as I read about Herod, I thought about some of these people and their arguments because it's the same thing. We come up with reasons. We come up with lies that we tell ourselves. I can't follow Jesus because of this. I can't trust in him because of this. We refuse to see who he truly is because we're so threatened by him. We have to put up these barriers between us and him. And I wonder why Matthew included this. And I think part of it is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the coming king. And if the king has come, the Messiah is here. Everything's going to be wonderful and perfect, right? Kind of. Eventually, yes. But do you remember the phrase in the song Amazing Grace? talks about the journey of faith which leads through many dangers, toils, and snares. That's what Matthew is pointing out to us. Yes, the king has come. But those around him are going to be threatened by him. Their way of life and what they consider normal is going to be turned upside down. And we get to see how they responded. And Matthew's holding this question up to us. How are you going to respond? But there's another threat going on here. Joseph and Mary are threatened because of Jesus. Their way of life, too, what they considered normal. Here, this young family came about in a very unusual way, unexpected way, but now it's kind of like, okay, the baby's born, we're living in a home, things can go on now. Now we'll get that blessing that God has promised us. And they're going to see the struggle of faithfulness. Let's back up to verses 13 to 15. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Let's skip down to 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, or to, yeah, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah, in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This account on the surface of it is is very easy to understand. They flee to Egypt. They live there several years until Herod dies. They go back home. They still perceive a bit of a threat, so they go and live in northern Israel in Galilee in the town of Nazareth. But Matthew's making some really big points here. And a big one that we need to hear is that the coming of the Messiah does not make everything easier and wonderful. Following Jesus, trusting in God's plan, is a struggle. It is a struggle. There's an important aspect of this that Matthew is pointing out to his readers of this. By tying this into the Old Testament and all these things God has done before, he's making the point, this is how God has always worked. Think about some of the Sunday school stories you might be aware of. Abraham. God calls to Abraham and says, leave your country, leave your people. And he does. Then his family has to go to Egypt to escape famine. They're enslaved there. And what happens when Moses is born? Pharaoh is threatened by the Israelites, so he too makes an order, an order to kill children. And all the boys of the Israelites that are born are put to death. But God saves Moses and uses Moses to deliver his people. You see the themes that are coming back again and again? God brings the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. They go back home. Later on, they have to go into exile in Babylon and God protects them in Babylon and then he brings them back home. Again, this theme that yes, God is leading them. Yes, it is good. Yes, he has this promise for them, but it's going to go through a lot of difficulty. There is a long history of people following God, trusting God through great difficulty. And there is a long and beautiful history of God sovereignly overseeing those people, protecting them, loving them, and guiding them through that difficulty according to his promise and his plan. And here in Matthew, we see this little snapshot, this intimate picture of this young family following God's will. And I pray that you can see yourself through that. I pray that as you read this, don't just think, well, this is Jesus and he's our Savior. Yes, but it's a family following God. And they're struggling, but they keep on following. Matthew is writing to people who thought when the Messiah came, all their problems would go away. And he says, let's look at the family Jesus is born into. Their problems don't go away. Some Christians still believe this. Some churches still teach this. And if you just believe in Jesus, all your problems will go away. You'll be healthy. You'll be happy. You might even get rich. There's a very prominent theme among Christians today. I would love to believe that. I would love to teach you that. I guarantee if the government would allow me, I could fill these chairs if I would teach that. But it is a lie from Satan. The Bible is what keeps us from teaching that. Because the Bible says again and again and again, following Jesus is good. You are saved from your sins. You will be with him forever. But the journey from here to there is tough. 
And anybody who tells you otherwise and tries to justify it from Scripture is selling you a lie, usually to, loan, to line their own pockets with money. But through the difficulty of this world and this life, God is good. And he leads us according to his plan. The gospel says at its heart, we are sinners in need of salvation. Well, one thing I've learned about sin is that it does not like to be confronted. And anytime sin is pointed out, said to be wrong, even in the context of you can be saved, it's still showing sin that sin is wrong, that it is bad. And guess how sinners feel when you point out sin in their life? They feel threatened. And I think that's universal for all of us. How will we respond to this threat? Will we lay down what we consider normal, natural, comfortable, what we think brings us pleasure or happiness? Will we lay that down and say, the king has come and I will follow him? Or will we feel threatened and put up walls in our life and excuses to try to avoid the threat of Jesus? What will we do when following Jesus gets difficult? Will we trust in the greater picture that God has been doing throughout all of Scripture? He is God. I am not. I will keep on following Him. Let me leave you with one question. How are you responding to this one who is born King of the Jews? How are you responding in your own life? King of the Jews, King of the world, Savior of sinners, and Lord of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we know these stories. We hear them every Christmas. Even those who don't grow up in churches are often familiar with many of these stories. And Father, I think often that becoming so familiar with them can make us overlook some of the important themes and applications. And I pray, Father, as we have struggled through this passage together, that you would apply these truths to our lives and help us to ask ourselves, are we like Herod? Or maybe the better question is not are we, but how are we like Herod? Because we all are. God, we like our comfort. We like our own happiness. We think that we can define that for ourselves. And if we can just hold on to it, then we'll be okay. And every while, every once in a while, you bring things into our lives and into our world that show us that we are not nearly as in control as we think we are. And so I pray, Father, that we would, instead of being threatened by Jesus, that we would respond and see him for the gift that he is, and that we would worship him. And that we would keep on worshiping him through difficulty, trusting in him, following him, come what may. For that promise of the promised land is still there, that we will be with you forever and ever. And along the way in this difficulty, there are others that need to hear this good news. May we be ones that are used by you to bring that great news to them. In your name we pray. Amen.